Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In recent episodes, we've been making our way through the book of Romans. Scholars attribute this book to the first century traveling church planting evangelist, the Apostle Paul. As we've seen, Paul writes his letter to the church in Rome to address the division and rivalry between Gentile and Jewish Christians. While the Jewish Christians claim they have a special claim on the gospel on account of their Abrahamic lineage and faith, the Gentiles argued that they had received the blessing of Abraham because God rejected the Jews on account of their stubborn lack of faith. By emphasizing the universal nature of the gospel, Paul emphasizes that God's saving righteousness is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. He then goes on to explain the complementary roles of the Jews and the Gentiles in salvation history and how God is building his kingdom through these people. As we continue reading in chapter 12, Paul turns his attention to the practical outworking of faith and gives the church at Rome some guidance on how to participate in a practical sense in God's new creation. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul argues that the only reasonable response to the gospel of God presented in the previous 11 chapters is for the Christians in Rome to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's unpack this image. Sacrifices are commonly slaughtered and their carcass is presented to the deity. For the New Testament writers, Jesus' execution up on the cross was seen as a sacrifice which quenched divine wrath and facilitated cosmic renewal. Although he died, Paul argues that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through his resurrection to become the firstborn of the new creation. Paul now urges the Christians in Rome to imitate Jesus' example. As Christians undergo baptism, they participate in a pantomime of their own death and resurrection as they put to death mimetic rivalry within them and are renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit. This transformation empowers Christians to denounce the mimetic rivalry which animates and drives the world around them. Let's consider why Paul describes the Christians in Rome presenting their bodies as a holy sacrifice to the Lord. You may recall that in the first 11 chapters of this letter, Paul has redefined his version of true Judaism and the true Jewish people. According to Paul, the true boundary marker which delineates the real Israel from everyone else is faith. Whoever follows Jesus' example in faith and rejects mimetic rivalry is part of the holy gospel community. Living a non-mimetic lifestyle, these people live in the presence of God without fear of outbursts of divine violence. By contrast, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness, that is, 
mimetic rivalry. To avoid a similar fate, the church at Rome must present their bodies as a holy living sacrifice to God. By these means, the Christians in Rome help bring Paul's vision of a new creation into being. Reading on now from verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with diligence, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Remember the original issue in the Church of Rome addressed by Paul's letter was one of arrogance and division. Glaring across the divide, both Jews and Gentiles considered themselves superior to their rivals. Each group would assert their own claim on the gospel blessings to the exclusion of their rivals. This same attitude can be observed everywhere in our own day. Each religion or denomination believes that they have everything right and God loves them exclusively. A similar dynamic may be seen across social justice and political groups who each believe they have exclusive access to the truth. In fact, this is how tribes, communities and even social networks function. They become echo chambers in which the approved narrative and ideology is boasted by its members who imitate, repeat and propagate groupthink. Convinced of their own virtue and veracity, or in Paul's words, their own righteousness, these people stubbornly defend their narrow point of view and persecute anyone else who opposes or disagrees with their ideas. Such dissenters are treated as enemies which must be vanquished to defend the group's honour, ideology and resources. Paul rebukes this pattern of behaviour and points forward to a better way. Instead of erecting boundary markers, elevating one's own status and clinging to the community's or tribe's limited point of view, Paul challenges us to embrace our enemies. The Christians in Rome must transform their narrow tribal perspective and embrace the diversity of others rather than ejecting them as anathema. This new vision rejects the old tribal mindset that equates unity with uniformity and embraces unity in diversity. In this new world, diversity is not just tolerated but embraced as it enriches and empowers the community. Everyone is mutually edified, built up and strengthened when everyone exercises their gifts for the mutual benefit of the entire community. To this end, Paul urges the church in Rome to embrace each other's differences that the community as a whole may be strengthened and edified. For us, this means listening to the voice of our enemies and seeking to understand them with humility and empathy. 
As we do so, we begin to sympathize with our rivals and transform our vision of them from enemies to fellow pilgrims. This transformation allows us to share our experience, knowledge and resources with our former enemies who eventually become our friends and allies. These are the first steps of reconciliation, the beginning of a new creation. Let's read on from verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Honour each other above yourselves. Exercise diligence. Be animated by the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is good in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul goes on to describe how people live in this new creation. The Christians in Rome must treat each other with brotherly love to ensure that each other's needs are met. Love and mimetic rivalry are mutually exclusive. While mimetic rivalry drives one to pursue their own idols without regard for the welfare of others, brotherly love places the welfare of our companions above our own desires. The Romans are also commanded to exercise humility as they elevate and honour each other above themselves. Again, this behaviour is contrary to mimetic rivalry, which always inspires the pursuit of honour and glory. In this new world, every person is honoured, valued and loved as part of the whole. This vision will only become a reality when the Christians in Rome lay aside their mimetic rivalry and idols and embrace one another as siblings. Paul urges the Christians in Rome to serve the Lord by diligently pursuing the new creation, as they become inspired by the Holy Spirit. As Paul told us in chapter 8, this new world will be conceived through pain and suffering, like those experienced by a woman in labour. As they experience this tribulation, the Romans may be tempted to abandon Paul's vision and return to a life of mimetic rivalry, just like everyone else. To help the Romans to patiently endure their suffering, Paul commands them to set their hope upon the new creation as an object to be desired above all others. If the Christians in Rome focus their desire wholly upon the new creation and reject all their other mimetic rivals, 
they will find motivation to endure and make Paul's vision a reality. The Christians in Rome are commanded to become positive models for others to imitate. Negative models generate mimetic rivalry and violence as they curse and fight with others. When people begin to imitate these negative models, they are drawn into the cycle of violence and the cycle escalates in intensity. In contrast, positive models live a non-mimetic lifestyle. Instead of cursing and engaging in violence with their enemies, positive models bless their enemies and live in harmony with one another. They do not reciprocate evil and violence, but respond repaying good for evil. In so doing, these people diffuse the cycle of mimetic rivalry and begin a new cycle of love and forgiveness as others imitate their example. Honour is a commonly desired object. This desire will drive people to elevate themselves above others in the hope of becoming more highly esteemed. For this reason, people want to be seen with honourable and famous people while avoiding the poor and needy. The desire for honour drives a wedge between the rich and the poor, who are ultimately discarded as irrelevant. To avoid this injustice and promote unity within the church community, Paul commands the Christians in Rome to lay aside their idols of honour. Inevitably, disputes and conflicts will arise. When they do, Paul counsels the Christians in Rome to forsake the temptation to avenge themselves by actively exercising charity towards their enemies. By these means, the Christians in Rome will overcome the cycle of mimetic rivalry and violence and replace it with a new cycle of peace, joy and love. But Paul's advice is difficult to follow because the pull of mimetic rivalry is so potent. To assist the Romans, Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35, in which the Lord proclaims, Vengeance is mine. In so doing, Paul provides a means of deferring mimetic rivalry onto God. The belief that God will ultimately punish evildoers for their actions allows the Christians in Rome to repay their enemies' violence with charity. Paul even quotes Proverbs chapter 25 verses 21 to 22, suggesting that the Romans' charity will ultimately increase their enemies' suffering. While this conflict may seem distasteful, it is also a stroke of psychological ingenience, which empowers the Christians in Rome to take the first steps towards loving and reconciling with their enemies. In spite of the bitter hatred they still harbour, the cycle of violence is broken and replaced by the non-mimetic cycle of reciprocal love. In time, this cycle transforms the relationship between the Christians in Rome and their enemies. This transformation begins with resisting the temptation to reciprocate evil with evil and actively choosing to love one's enemies. Reading on now from chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to have no fear of the person who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's ministers, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no precision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Although Paul instructs the Romans to resist the cycle of mimetic rivalry which rages in the world around them, he provides a caveat to this command. Resisting the rivalry of Rome does not mean resisting the Roman Empire itself. To resist the empire's authority is itself an act of mimetic rivalry which may incur God's wrath. As Paul explained in chapter 1, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. In other words, mimetic violence escalates as people engage in mimetic rivalry with each other. In Paul's day, many people observed Caesar's power and authority and desired to become like him. Driven by mimetic desire, these people resist Caesar's rule by any means necessary in the hope of overthrowing him. To strengthen his grasp on power and riches, Caesar inflicts mimetic violence on those who dare to engage in mimetic rivalry with him. In order to avoid unnecessary conflict and violence, the Christians in Rome are called to denounce their mimetic idols of riches, honour and power and submit to Caesar's authority by paying him all the honour and taxes to which he is entitled. Paul sums up his argument by exhorting the Christians in Rome to love everyone, even their enemies, and by these means to fulfil the law. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the law is really meant to curb or to restrain mimetic rivalry. Commands such as, you shall not commit adultery, 
helps avoid the mimetic rivalry which may flourish between two men as they compete for the love and affection of a single woman. Such a rivalry may spiral out of control, even culminating in murder. As we have noted, the deadly cycle of blood vengeance begins with initial murder, which is then avenged by the victim's kinsmen, and so on and so forth, until the violence of bloodshed destroys the entire community. The prohibition against theft and coveting are essentially a prohibition against mimetic desire. For Paul, true love excludes all these offences and in this way fulfills everything the law was meant to do. Paul closes by exhorting his audience to wake up from their slumber. The Christians in Rome once participated in the darkness of mimetic rivalry, but now the day has dawned. Now salvation is close and now is the time to repent from their sin. They must put off the works of darkness, that is mimetic rivalry, and put on the armour of light, this law of love of which Paul speaks. Paul then lists various vices which commonly take place under the cover of darkness, including orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Because these practices are commonly considered taboo, they become all the more attractive and people attempt to commit them secretly under the cover of darkness. So again here we see the same idea that Paul exposed in chapter 7, that the taboos and the restrictions only inflame mimetic desire within us. Paul adds quarrelling and jealousy, as also the fruits of mimetic desire, to his list of forbidden nocturnal activities. His point is that the Romans need to wake up and realise that the day has dawned. The night is over and the time for all these taboos have passed. Moving forward, the Romans must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they must imitate and become like the Lord Jesus, their ultimate model, while denouncing mimetic rivalry. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.